The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content related to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. To my daddy, an investigator's worst enemy was a closed mind, because sometimes you could let that stand between you and the truth. In his 20 years as chief, his crowning achievement was that he never once lost a case as a prosecutor in Superior Court. His motto was, if you've got a case, work it until it's a good case. And if you don't have a case, don't insult the court and yourself by bringing it to the bar. From Solving the West Georgia Murder of Gwendolyn Moore, A Cry from the Well by Clay Bryant. Welcome back, Murder Bookies. I am your host, Jill, and I hope you had a red, white, and blue July 4th. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah. I know I love fireworks, too. Makes me feel all patriotic and sentimental about our country. We are so blessed. I am delighted you are joining me for this special series on two true crime books written by Clay Bryant. Solving the West Georgia Murder of Gwendolyn Moore, A Cry from the Well, and right off the presses, released in May 2023, The Cold Case Murder of Fred Wilkerson, Untangling the Black Widow's Web in West Georgia. Both are utterly remarkable. This is Episode 66, Coined in a Wishing Well, on the Unsolved Gwendolyn Moore Case. Chief Bryant just tells the story straight up with no elaboration but there are the most delightful embellishments. Believe me, it is just amazing to see how all of this unfolds. His storytelling style is so special. And when we spoke about this project, it was as if he was a brother from another mother. This has just been a delightful collaboration, and I am so happy that we could tell you about these cases with justice delayed, but achieved. All right, a little bit of housekeeping. For those of you on Patreon, Thank you for your support and fun. It's really a wonderful thing to hear from you and share with you and get some feedback. And the merch shop is open. Summer merch is on Spreadshop. There's a link on my blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. So get them while they're hot. (laughs) See what I did there? (laughs) And listen, since we are a book club, we need to snack. Since our focus is on West Georgia, In the southern United States, I found this recipe for fresh Georgian peach crumble on Sizzling Eats online. And you know where to find the link in info. This is simple to make and utterly palate-teasing, perfect for summer book club. The ingredients are peaches, flour, so this is not gluten-free, sugar or stevia, salt, egg whites, and cinnamon. You mix it up, you bake it for 45 minutes, So I would make it early in the morning before it gets really hot out. And you are all set for this wonderful Georgia peach treat for book club. Short and sweet, right? I paired the peach crumble with Whispering Angel's The Beach Rosé, going totally on my summer theme here today. It is an authentic Coteau X en Provence medium dry wine. 
It is a pale pink with green hues, clear and expressive. A fresh aroma, it is subtle with both red fruit and a hint of lime that plays on the palate. And the finish is tinged appropriately with peach and citrus. A very good price for the quality. It runs about $18 a bottle in my area. So, bon appetit as we begin delving into these cases with our author and a little bit about this very wise and decent man. Lewis Clayton Bryant, known as Clay Bryant, was born and raised in Trope County, Georgia, where Clay begins his law enforcement career in 1973 with the Georgia State Patrol as a radio operator. Three years later, at 21, he became the youngest trooper in the state. In 1980, Clay Bryant took the job as chief of police in Hogansville, Georgia, serving with integrity for the next 12 years. After a stint in the private sector, he returned to law enforcement to fulfill his calling because he really had to be in law enforcement. Chief Clay Bryant is recognized as the most prolific cold case investigator in the United States for single event homicides. He resides in LaGrange and currently serves as an investigator for the Georgia Public Defender Standards Council. His cases have been chronicled on 48 Hours Investigates, Bill Curtis's Cold Case Files, Discovery ID Murder Book, as well as many articles in local and regional newspapers. For the record, he is one terrific human being whom I admire greatly. Translation, I'm fangirling big time. <laughs> okay, this case begins with a stark recollection. Investigator Clay Bryant is listening to Alan Moore describe the last time he saw his mother, Gwendolyn Moore, alive. With icy goosebumps spreading over his arms, Clay listened to him recount years of dysfunctional violence that dominated his daily family interactions. Now a grown man, a veteran, a sobbing Alan, was still suffering from the anguish 32 years later. Growing up in Hogansville, Georgia, Alan Moore and Clay Bryant had actually known each other, living on opposite sides of town. Clay came to recognize that the life they lived as children derived from the opposite sides of the continuum, one loving and supportive, the other not so much. Listening to Alan's memory of the worst day of his life, trembling in fear and anger, Clay also remembered. Clay's dad was Buddy Bryant, police chief of Hogansville, a man beloved in their community, with a vision about law enforcement investigation that was certainly before his time. He told his son, quote, The ruination of policing was the day they put air conditioning in the patrol car. On that day, it became comfortable for an officer to isolate himself from the people he serves, end quote. Well, that made me stop and think. I hadn't thought about that at all. And an arrow in an era when Braun was the respected practice of policing, the elder Bryant supported police training and education. Now, Buddy was aware that his son wanted to follow in his footsteps. Thus, he said, quote, Playboy, ride out to Junior Turner's with me. The sheriff's office wants us to stand by until they arrive. They've got a body in an old well next to Junior's, end quote. Buddy would be taking crime scene photos as well. Eager and ready, 15-year-old Clay was glad to go. Junior and Louise Turner lived at the corner of Lee Street and Mobley Bridge Road with their three kids right on the dividing border between Hogansville and the unincorporated Trope County. Next to them 
was Miss Chauncey Turner, and her sons, Danny, Donnie, and Ronnie, where music was heard day and night. A car accident had left Danny confined to a wheelchair, and Danny began a gospel singing group, the Danny Turner Singers. Recently, an attractive young divorcee, Priscilla Shepard, had joined as their pianist. And remember those names, both Priscilla and Shepard. As Chief Buddy Bryant and son approached, the crowd began murmuring and speculated, morbid curiosity on display, gathered around the old well located near where a house had once stood. Now dilapidated, it was used as a garbage dump. While Buddy began the protocol to recover the body, Clay peered into the well, seeing a woman's body about 25 feet down, crouched as if praying. Off to the side, Alan and his little brother Ricky were crying. Clay writes that he has a vivid memory of, quote, that poor soul twisting at the end of a record cable after being pulled up from the depths of the well, her body suspended over that hellish garbage-strewn pit, her blouse splattered with blood, her eyes swollen shut. Dried blood, a deep maroon color, covered her face and her entire body was mottled black and blue. End quote. Just utterly gruesome. This poor woman was Gwendolyn Moore. With the body sent to McKibben's funeral home, Clay heard his daddy's anguished remorse, a shame that he couldn't do anything for her. Knowing the case details that he did not share with young Clay, Buddy regretted it had all come to this. This was not some tragic accident. Gwendolyn Moore had been murdered, and Buddy believed her husband, Marshall Moore, was responsible. So to understand the next sequence of events in the timeline, it's necessary to understand the background and the culture of Trope County and who's who. I have a map on my blog to help you visualize the geographic layout. A bit downriver from Hogansville is Randolph County, Alabama. During the late 1800s, John Will and Lou Shepard raised a large family of five boys and five girls. They moved their family from Alabama to LaGrange, Georgia in 1912. One son died of the Spanish flu pandemic following World War I. Wallace Shepard became a successful businessman, while the other sons moved back to crime-laden, infamous Phoenix City, Alabama. With close proximity to Fort Benning, Son Hoyt Shepard began catering to every vice under the sun, applying his trade to the endless number of young army recruits. I could envision it when I read that, quote, At one time, General George Patton threatened to lay siege to the city and take his third army across the Chattahoochee River Bridge into Phoenix City. Patton considered seriously the detrimental effects of the vices the town were having on soldiers' training at Fort Benning in preparation for their entry into World War II. End quote. It wasn't uncommon for naive soldiers to be found floating in the river after being robbed of their cash. Well, that says something about the place, right? Brothels, bars, gambling establishments, luring their next victims as they swept politicians into their web, compromising them. Phoenix City was run by the old Dixie Mafia, who happened to be headed by Hoyt Shepard and his partner, Jimmy Matthews. Hoyt and the illegal enterprises he ran with an iron fist were protected by Sheriff Ralph Matthews. In September 1946, Hoyt's brother Grady Shepard and Jimmy Matthews 
were charged with the murder of competitor Fate Lieburn. During the trial, Grady confessed to killing Lieburn, but claimed it was self-defense, resulting in Hoyt and Jimmy's acquittal. Their defense attorney, Vernon Belcher, was young and upcoming and would make a name for himself in West Georgia in later years. Ironically, it was Hoyt's defense attorney, Albert Patterson, a decent man and a war veteran who by 1953 had had enough of corruption and decided to run for Attorney General of Alabama. In spite of multiple attempts to steal the election, Patterson won. But the Dixie Mafia was having none of this cleanup nonsense, and Patterson was assassinated on June 18, 1954, leaving his office in Phoenix City. Who investigated this murder? Sheriff Ralph Matthews, who found no witnesses as the investigation produced no results. Well, I mean, that's a shock, right? This malignant duplicity ran through every small hamlet, right to the state capital, Montgomery. The highest-ranking law enforcement officer in the state was Attorney General Cy Garrett, who was part of the corruption of the Dixie Mafia. But people's eyes began to open, and they began raising a ruckus. In early 1954, Sheriff Matthews was forced from office. The Patterson investigation was revived, and eyewitnesses were located, and an indictment came down on Attorney General Cy Garrett, Russell County Solicitor Arch Farrell, and the trigger man, Sheriff Matthews' Chief Deputy Albert Fuller. Fuller was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Garrett claimed the insanity defense and was declared unable to stand trial due to being mentally incompetent. So yeah, the guy who 15 minutes before was a perfectly normal functioning attorney general of Alabama, now he's incompetent. All right, fine. Farrell was eventually acquitted too, but the public was not having it. Governor Gordon Parsons declared a state of martial law in Phoenix City and Russell County. General Walter J. Hanna, who commanded the state's National Guard, was ordered into the city to relieve all law enforcement officials until an interim government could be put in place. That is called leadership taking on corruption. I miss that kind of decisive intervention for the greater good. So rounding up all the hooligans involved in this mess, a blue-ribbon grand jury was called to investigate the corruption. Okay, according to LSD.com, A blue-ribbon jury is a type of jury consisting of jurors who are selected for their special qualities, such as advanced education or special training. This type of jury is sometimes used in complex civil cases or for grand juries investigating governmental corruption. There you are. Full disclosure, I am a fan of grand juries, having served on one every Tuesday for 18 weeks back in New Jersey. And it was a great experience. Well, this grand jury issued 545 indictments on 57 defendants charged with everything from murder to willful neglect of duty. Sheriff Ralph Matthews was indicted, pleading guilty. And it would take a while for all of this to shake down, but Phoenix City became a clean, respectable community once more. See? We, the people, can stand against corruption. 
We can beat back abusive power. We can raise our voices. And bravo to that first decent person who starts taking action. Well, Robert Shepard, son of Wallace, was close to his uncle Hoyt. And while Robert began as a legitimate businessman, he had an obsession with gangsters. Robert Shepard winds up opening his own criminal enterprise, the Eagle Club, with illegal gambling, expanding to provide other clubs with vice support. While Trope County was dry, clubs such as these provided a haven to imbibe. They were generally tolerated because they were low-key, but it wasn't long before Shepard was running Trope County, just as Uncle Hoyt had run Russell County in Alabama. And the air quote machine infiltrated politics by the Democratic Party. So, murder bookies, this is a politics-free zone, and so I'm not playing political games here. This is just a historical fact that Clay presents. Sheriff Lem Bailey, a drinker and carouser, was one part of this machine, and for the right amount of money and the right social status, Sheriff Bailey would protect you, not investigate you. Makes my blood boil. The corrupt machine roared through Trope County in the 1960s and 70s, with the shepherd's control at an unprecedented level. He, or one of his boys, served as the chairman of the Democratic Committee of Trope County. The Republican Party had next to zero power in the South at this time. Shepard was a power broker, unsurpassed, a rare individual who was able to call the governor on his private line. Getting state jobs, getting help from a state agency, transferring prisoners from X to Y, even getting a driveway put on the property uh, to a highway built, they were all a snap, if you knew the right people. The Shepherds would get Jimmy Matthews' defense attorney, Vernon Belcher, a judgeship, meaning that they were in control of the justice system in the area, too. Sheriff Bailey was in a sweet spot, a lucrative frontman for the machine, and he certainly wasn't going to rock the boat by questioning the unfortunate death of some poor country girl like Gwendolyn Moore. As Buddy Bryant wrote at the time, quote, When the governor of Alabama saw fit to drain the swamp known as Phoenix City, some of the snakes slipped upriver and crawled out on the banks of Trope County. End quote. Gwendolyn Moore was soon forgotten, and that is how you get away with murder. Complicit connections. Now, Buddy Bryant was different from those that spewed their dishonesty for greed and gain. Knowing Clay's fervent desire to go into law enforcement, Buddy said, quote, Son, the world is full of policemen but there are very few peace officers. This is what you want to do. For God's sakes, be a peace officer. End quote. And he set a good example for his boy. Buddy's superpower was being able to diffuse volatile situations and bring both warring parties to the table to resolve an issue, with each believing that he'd won. Well, that is a useful power for the chief of police, right? Clay admits that he stood in awe of his dad. He describes Buddy as having the wisdom of Solomon and the patience of Job. Now, this doesn't mean that Chief Bryant was without his faults. On his bad days, Buddy was a binge-drinking alcoholic. He'd stay dry for a year and then go on a bender and be incapacitated for a few days. Never violent, Buddy Bryant would drink and just withdraw until he ran out. He never spanked or struck play 
but a look of disappointment might drop him to his knees. Buddy Bryant was born to Jim and Alma Bryant, their eldest, with a sister and two brothers following. Raised in Grantville, Georgia, Jim worked at the bank's cotton mill for most of his life. He was extremely firm, harshly enforcing rules, and God helped the rule breakers. As kids grew up, they were eager to leave their father's temper and the tension it caused and get out on their own. Buddy left to join the military. Later, he and Jim would make their peace, with Buddy never fully understanding how his dad could be so kind to neighbors, but so harsh with his own family. Clay speculates that the turnaround in his grandfather's attitude stemmed from losing his sons, who put distance between themselves and him. And Clay believes this unresolved anger his dad retained was at the root of his self-destructive behavior. Nevertheless, his grandfather was good to Clay, and somewhere along their path, his dad learned a rare wisdom leading to his understanding of people and how the world worked. Taking in the good, Clay rejected the bad, refusing to repeat the same mistakes his father had. When it came to law enforcement, Buddy absorbed training like a sponge, which is not the norm at the time. He graduated from the first Georgia State Police Academy in 1966, and he was one of a handful who was an FBI-certified fingerprint expert. It was his thirst for knowledge that destined him to become police chief, a job he loved. Whatever the gift for solving crimes, Buddy Bryant had it. From a missing kid's bike to a murder, he'd collect the evidence and then pause to quietly contemplate his next actions, steepling his fingers. And then he'd rise and go talk to neighbors, informants, and before you knew it, someone was confessing. Buddy made it his business to know the good, the bad, and the ugly. Knowing quirks, tendencies, and routines, Buddy would apply this mental database and come up with a solution. The enemy of the investigator, quote, was a closed mind because sometimes you could let that stand between you and the truth, end quote. The Betsy Faria case comes to mind where husband Russ Faria went to jail because the prosecution and the police were locked into the husband did it, and Russ would eventually win a new trial, and he was exonerated with Pam Hupp, now charged with Betsy's murder. If you haven't listened to episodes 40 to 44, uh, you need to do so. And it is almost time for an update on this case. Oh, it's not done yet. Now, Buddy was a fair man. Who you were was irrelevant. All people had equal access to the chief, and they were treated with respect as a true peace officer would. But others did not share Buddy's affection for justice. The Gwendolyn Moore case was already closed, and Sheriff Lem Bailey had no interest in seeing justice done. Buddy lamented to Clay, quote, If it had been just across the road in the city limits, he'd be on his way to death row in Tattnail County right this minute, end quote. This burden laid upon Bunny's heart, quote, knowing that the greatest reward is protecting the helpless as he vowed to try to set the record straight one day, end quote. What was known back in 1970? 14-year-old Alan Moore knew his daddy killed his mama, and if Alan wasn't careful, he knew he could be found down a well too. Having just lost the only person who made his life bearable, who insulated him from the violence and the misery, he now sat before Agent Troy Owens, 
of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. The man Sheriff Lem Bailey enlisted to investigate Gwendolyn Moore's death. Now, back in the 70s, the GBI wasn't the premier law enforcement organization it is today. Back then, GBI worked at the pleasure of the sheriff. Thus, they investigated with their hands handcuffed behind them. Bailey wanted to avoid kerfuffles, so he passed the buck to GBI, his scapegoat, and the outcome was already known. Alan was still living with his vicious, angry father. Without Gwendolyn's protective cocoon to shield her boys, Alan was now the primary victim. The guilt he felt over that night ran deep. He didn't understand that he was a victim as well. Once before Gwendolyn died, Ricky had broken the car's blinker, and terrified, Alan had taken the blame. A drunk marshal grabbed a swing chain made of cut and twisted steel and beat Alan mercilessly with it, torturing his eldest. Struck unconscious, Alan has no memory beyond the terror and the searing pain of that first blow. Soon after, his mother had come in, quietly, wiping tears, using warm, damp washcloths to soften blood, which stuck to him and the bedsheet. Marshall came barreling in, yelling at her for petting the boy, grabbing her by her hair, throwing her crashing to the floor, beating her until his adrenaline rush ended. Then he tore off her clothes so he could see the damage he'd inflicted on her body. This time, Gwendolyn would be unconscious for three days, hospitalized, and the medical team warned her, more beatings like this, and she would have severe long-term damage. Alan was feeling powerless and felt guilty because he couldn't protect his mom. He couldn't quite process that this violence wasn't his fault or his mom's, and that they were good people, not bad. It was all about Marshall Moore's need for control and the rush of dominating his victims so completely, and this abusive cycle repeated over and over. On August 3, 1970, Gwendolyn let the boys go for a swim at the pool, and unexpectedly, Marshall showed up early ordering them into the car. Alan dreaded going home. No doubt his father had already beaten Mama senseless for daring to let the boys have some fun. Strange. Arriving home, Mama wasn't there recovering. Only baby Dean was in his crib. And Marshall seemed shaken by this too. It wasn't a good luck having his swollen, bloody, beaten wife begging for help among the neighbors. He ordered Alan to go find her now. Alan knew she would be hiding at the Turner's house, huddled in the crawl space in the far rear corner. He heard her soft sobs, her face illuminated by his flashlight, horribly mangled, swollen, and bloody. Alan promised her he wouldn't tell Daddy where she was, and Gwendolyn reassured Alan, quote, I'll get help and I'll come back for you and your brothers. Just go back home and take care of them till I get back. Son, I love you. End quote. The last words he would ever hear her say. Climbing from under the house, Alan could hear his father cursing, calling for Gwendolyn as he stalked his prey. The next time he saw his mama, she'd be lying dead at the bottom of that well. After Alan's statements to police, each day was a waiting game. He expected the police to arrest his father. But instead, three months after Gwendolyn's death, Marshall remarried, a young, pretty divorcee 
named Priscilla Shepard. Yeah, Priscilla Shepard, daughter of Robert Shepard, who pulled the strings in Trope County with Sheriff Lem Bailey's support. The arrest never came. About six months after Gwendolyn was found in the well, Marshall was triggered by something. As he latched onto Alan, pummeling him in the face, beating him with a shoe. Like his mom, Alan led to his friends, Ronnie Turner and Mike Thrower, both 15 years old. They'd watched the violence in the Moore home for years now and missed Mrs. Moore, who had been so kind and sweet. Mike, a scraggly teenager, decided that this was the last straw. He'd seen enough. Going inside, he retrieved his father's shotgun, stepping out in front of Alan. He told Marshall, who was triple the size of Mike, quote, if you step one foot in our yard, I'm going to shoot you, end quote. And he held Marshall at bay. Alan was lying on the floor at the Turners when the sheriff arrived. Alan was told he had two choices, go home to his father or leave. Unable to protect himself, let alone his brothers, Alan opted to leave. He did a three-hour walk over to his Aunt Cyan's, who was divorced from Marshall's brother, Joe. So wait, the sheriff gives him this, go to your father or leave. And the sheriff didn't even drive the beaten, bruised teenager to his aunt's house? Aunt Cyan loved Gwendolyn's kids, so she welcomed Alan. If he wanted to stay, he needed to go to school or get a job. And with a tweak of his birth certificate, Alan became eligible to work at the Dixie Cotton Mill in LaGrange. Three years had passed, and Alan had earned a reputation of being an earnest worker and a good young man. Still, Alan felt the guilt weighing and decided he needed to get away and joined the Navy. He soon earned his GED and would go on to have a long and successful career, but the imprint of violence and dysfunction had left his mark. Alan married four times, divorcing each one, having no role model for decent husbanding. And with something shut down inside of him after his mother's death, he wasn't sure he could give himself fully to anyone. Retiring in 1993 as a full chief petty officer, the highest rank for an enlisted man, he soon found a job at Cornell Correction Facility as superintendent over all electronic surveillance for the area. But Alan still had no closure, the wound in his heart and mind never fully scabbing over. Not until the phone rang in October 2002, which plunged him back to the well the day his mom died. It was 1980. Like Albert Patterson before him, Buddy Bryant had enough of the good old boy machine. Political cronies were still using the law to hurt, not help, ignoring crimes, and he decided to run for sheriff against Lem Bailey. A formidable task and Buddy's alcoholism was a yoke around his neck. Announcing his candidacy anyway, Buddy ran as a recovering alcoholic, and that's not an exaggeration, and he vowed to be fair and responsive to everyone in Trope County. It became clear that the folks were tired of the dirty politics, lining the pockets of a few, screwing everyone else over, and Buddy's support grew. Now, the machine was a powerhouse, but overconfident. We've been in power. We'd stay in power. Well, in the 90-degree heat over three months, 
Buddy walked to every door in Trope County asking for their support. With five running in the race on August 3rd, 1980, Buddy won his way into a runoff and was likely to win by a landslide. August 18th, Clay swung by work to visit his dad, who was in a great energized mood. Every other candidate, except Sheriff Bailey, had endorsed him. A bit tired, there were only ten more days left, and then he could take some time and rest up. Clay headed off after they planned to meet up for coffee later that night. But then at 2.30 p.m., Buddy suffered a massive coronary, his third, and died. Clay was beyond crushed. All was not lost election-wise. All the light that Buddy had shown in the cracks, sending the bugs scattering, did have an impact. With Buddy out of the race, the boys assumed that they'd won by default. But they were wrong. That is not the way the law worked. The law required that a third candidate be elevated back into the race. Gene Jones, a retired state patrol sergeant, won the support of Buddy's campaign, and Gene Jones would go on to win comfortably. It was the beginning of the end of the corruption. Those boys who held power in the Democratic Executive Committee were replaced. But with Buddy dead, much of what we know about the Glenn Moore case, the voice from the well going unanswered. I believe it was Clay's heartache over losing his dad that caused him to veer from his destiny as he resigned, leaving the Georgia State Patrol. He would excel in business for a time, having financial success, but would be utterly miserable. And I mean, he'd grown up in the seat of a police car, just like I grew up in the front seat of a fire truck. A lot of my character was forged in that setting, so I understand Clay completely. Buddy had wanted his son to climb the ladder of success, not being a trooper, but instead being a prosecutor. Clay was frankly lukewarm to the idea, but Buddy offered to pay for Clay to go to law school. Not one to disappoint his parents, Clay enrolled at the Woodrow Wilson School of Law in Atlanta and graduated with his law degree in June 1980, the proudest day of his father's life. But his father's sudden death sent Clay into a spiral. In June 1981, the Hogansville City Council offered him his father's job, and he accepted, but for all the wrong reasons. His compass needle was still spinning. Don't get me wrong, Clay did a terrific job over the next decade. He loved Hogansville. He ran a small but progressive police department that also dispatched ambulances. Their new firing range became the off-campus location for the Regional Police Academy. But he wasn't Buddy, he was Clay. And no matter what he accomplished, he'd always be in his father's shadow, albeit a loving one. Mulling over offers from larger departments, he couldn't quite make himself leave Hogansville. And then politics reared its competitive head once more when the sitting mayor asked for Clay's support. Now, Clay had been politics neutral since taking over the police department, and he resisted, no matter who won he'd still be his police chief. And the mayor suggested that Clay would come to regret this decision. Charming man, isn't he? Well, the tension mounted between the mayor and his police chief, and his daddy would have told him, Son, never argue with a fool 
people on the sidelines won't be able to tell which one is which. End quote. Oh my God, that is so good. So many people forget this. Clay resigned in June 1992, and he moved to LaGrange and began working as a supervisor with the Trout County Emergency Medical Services. It was good work. It was enjoyable even, but it was not law enforcement. After three years of 24-hour shifts, it was hard on the family, and he really missed police work. Clay then resigned. Concerned over a political backlash, however, Clay began a business selling Bridgestone Firestone tires that was eventually bought out. In the fall 2002, a friend of his, Roy Alger, a retired DBI agent who worked with the district attorney, told Clay that there was an opening and he might want to check it out. And Clay did and was hired in October 2003. He was back. Nine days later, investigator Larry Arrington called Clay at the sheriff's office asking about local history. Hey, did Clay recall a case from the Hogansville area? Ah, going back decades, a woman's body was found in a well off Mobley Bridge Road. And we know that Clay was more than familiar with it, having been there when the body was recovered. Well, that was good news, because the sheriff's office had no records of it at all. A young woman, Leslie Power, had found a death certificate of a relative she hadn't known existed, and it said that the cause of death was homicide. When Leslie Power inquired, there were no records. As Clay reflected, he could hear his daddy's words, quote, If only they had lived across the road, end quote. Faxed over, he studied the death certificate, and his eyes caught the date of the facts, October 24, 2002. It was his daddy, Buddy's birthday, 22 years after his death. Clay saw the hand of God, who always has a plan, never doubt it. And sometimes we catch a glimpse of it. So before we launch further into the investigation, victims matter to me and it's important to acknowledge them as people. Gwendolyn McDaniel Moore was much more than a murder victim and an abused wife. Born on April 28, 1940, to Flora and Rassie Lee McDaniel, she was the fourth of their five children. Brought up with her many siblings in Adamsville, just outside Atlanta's West End, her parents raised them with good Southern values, hard work, independence, and a reverence for the sanctity of family. None suspected that these positive traits would help trap Gwendolyn into a tyrannical marriage highlighted by pain. Rassie Lee worked for the railroad, a dependable, faithful man who devoted himself to his wife and kids. Gwendolyn's sister, Pat Terry, described their childhood as being wonderful. Their dad was a kind, genteel man who never used his hands for anything but helping. It was a simple but a comfortable life growing up during a challenging America in the 1940s and 50s. Laura McDaniel exuded self-reliance something she had learned coming up poor. She raised the children, chickens, hogs, cows, cared for a large garden, canned food, and took in sewing to help out. Back then, kids worked out their own problems, and after chores were completed, made up their own games. They grew up believing that they would marry a like-minded person and devote themselves to their families. The problem was, 
Not everyone is as kind-hearted or as decent as the McDaniels. Now, the Joneses lived down the road and ran a small cafe on the west side of Atlanta. Decent people, they took in a young, troubled runaway named Marshall Moore, who lived with them for about four years. His path crossed with Gwendolyn McDaniels. Gwendolyn was kind, gentle, but also craved adventure. She had also begun looking for a suitable husband who would sweep her off her feet and get her out from under her mom's strict rules, the mantra of many a teenage girl in that era. Petite, heart-shaped face, pixie-like, she attracted Marshall's attention. He was charming, mysterious, and captivating, nothing like the boy she'd grown up with in Adamsville. They courted briefly, and Gwendolyn was completely smitten. Marshall was strong, tall, and he would certainly protect her. Her parents approved, taking Marshall in as he appeared, never questioning that he was anything but a decent, hard-working young man. And September 9th, 1955, Gwendolyn married Marshall in a church downtown. He had held himself in check until he caught his prey. And afterward, his dark side reared its ugliness. Not long after the wedding, Pat Terry saw her sister, front teeth missing, face swollen. Marshall had beat her. From then onward, every time they visited, Gwendolyn had black eyes, breaking Pat's heart. Marshall was starting out as a truck driver, and they struggled financially with Gwen, the punching bag. Son Alan was born when they were living in a house on Atlanta's West End, and the culture of the times dictated that what occurred between husband and wife was a private matter. Rassy Lee offered the young family the basement apartment in their home to help them out. While Gwendolyn was happy to be home, Marshall resented having to rein in his impulses to dominate, control, and punish. Gwen was forbidden to regularly communicate with her parents, even though they lived under the same roof. Confused, Rassy Lee was hurt that Gwendolyn was so detached while his daughter bore the brunt of her husband's churlish whims. If anyone would have stood up to Marshall, it would have been Rassy Lee. But before it came to that, on October 3, 1956, Rassy Lee lost control while driving, having an accident. He was paralyzed from the neck down, and complications from other injuries would eventually lead to his death six months later. Gwendolyn was forbidden to attend on her father, but nevertheless, she managed to sneak upstairs. March 8, 1957, during an operation to amputate his legs, Rassie Lee died. A widow, Flora had to make ends meet as she assumed responsibility for the family. Selling her home, she bought a small cafe and shop in South Fullerton County. This meant that Gwendolyn and Marshall had to find a new place to live also, with Gwendolyn pregnant again. Finding a small house to rent, Ricky was born on September 18, 1957. With violence spiraling, Gwendolyn did not fear she could confide in Flora, who was carrying the weight of the world already. Her mother-in-law, Maud Moore, eventually became close to Gwendolyn, Maud herself a victim of abusive Moore men. A bully who preyed on the weakness of others, Maud filled Gwendolyn in on Marshall's childhood. She assured her, if she ever needed to escape, Gwendolyn was welcome at Maud's. 
Gwendolyn did find safe haven with Maud periodically, who saw how devoted she was to her boys. Rose, Marshall's sister, witnessed Marshall drive up, fetching Gwendolyn back with another woman in the car, taking off his belt threateningly as he approached the house. Quote, I'm going to whip your ass until you get your ass and them damn youngins in this car and we're going back to Atlanta, end quote. Standing up to Marshall, Maud said he'd have to whip them all, so he'd better get back to his girlfriend and go to Atlanta himself, while he left cursing up the storm. Returning next week when everyone was at work, seizing Gwendolyn and the boys. And in 1959, their third son, Larry, was born right after Christmas. I am truly disgusted. What a miserable coward. What a minuscule stature for all his physical strength. He can beat a small, petite woman into unconsciousness. He can smack around little kids. What a small man Marshall Moore is. He can't control himself, let alone control everyone else. I have such complete contempt for him. In late 1961, Laura sold her cafe, moving to Mableton. Not long later, Gwendolyn had had enough going against her upbringing, and she asked her mom for help. Flora opened her home to her desperate black and blue daughter and grandsons. Immediately, Marshall began intimidating, kicking in Flora's door, and he left her pistol on the kitchen counter. And then, poof, Gwendolyn and the boys were gone. Later, she'd show up at Flora's with Marshall and the boys, with Gwendolyn reciting the sentences Marshall demanded she memorize to say to her mom. Mid-1962, Flora got a call to come to the old Austell Hospital immediately. In her seventh month of pregnancy, Gwendolyn had lost her baby. Marshall had kicked her in the stomach and deserted her. Her sister Pat recalled, quote, Gwen was in a terrible way. She cried and screamed all night while she delivered that poor dead baby, end quote. Marshall never came to the hospital, coward that he is. He never came to the baby's funeral either. Back at her home, Aunt Siam stayed with Gwendolyn while the boys went to Grandma Moore's house so their mom could recover. This time, Gwendolyn was energized to take action. She and the boys moved in with Pat, and they went to see a divorce lawyer. With the petition for divorce drafted, Gwendolyn now had to file the divorce papers in DeKalb County. Her attorney warned her, quote, If you don't go through with this, he'll kill you, end quote. And she assured him she was going to file later in the week. A utility project was going on next door, creating huge mountains of dirt that neighborhood kids just couldn't resist, climbing and having a grand time. Ricky and Larry, plus their cousin Sandra, saw a car come flying into the yard with Marshall behind the wheel. Alan and Pat's son Tony came around from behind the house to see what was happening. Marshall was hollering for the kids to get in the car, crying none of them wanted to go. Gwendolyn ran outside where Marshall issued an ultimatum. He was leaving. Be ready to go in ten minutes. When he gets back, he'll kill the boys. Well, terrified that he would hurt her babies, Gwendolyn complied. Shortly thereafter, Marshall moved his prisoners to yet another house on Overbrook Drive. The new neighbors would tell stories of him cursing, yelling, hearing the beatings, of Gwendolyn begging him to stop hitting her. By 1968, 
They were living in a house just outside the city limits in Hogansville, an unincorporated Troop County. Neighbors repeated the same stories about the Moors, and baby Dean was born here on July 17, 1969. Gwendolyn had little over a year to live. Well, where the hell did Marshall Moore come from? Up in the foothills of the Great Smoky Mountains is one of the most economically and deprived areas of the United States, Appalachia. Agriculture doesn't thrive, life is just plain hard, and there's a lot of coal mines. The Moors lived near Boggs Mountain, dating back to long before the Civil War, about an hour and 45 minutes northeast of Atlanta. With limited law enforcement and educational resources allocated, the air quote, Code of the Hills, was the way of it. A man ruled his family, and no one dared intervene. It was 1924, and J.P. Moore and his sister Mary heard their parents' voices yelling and crying as Sarah Jane Timmons Moore was beaten by her husband, Joseph Alexander Moore, who was begging him to stop. Managing to run for it, Sarah Jane took off, bellowing for the kids to go to granddad's and in a blind rage, Joseph Alexander took off after her. J.P. and Mary were terrified, remaining with their grandparents all night. But they all saw this glow. There was a big fire up on the mountainside, and smoke that smelled of burning flesh choked the valley below. When Joseph showed up the next day, he said that Sarah wouldn't be coming back. What was left of her charred body was later found. No one spoke of it. No one questioned. No one acted. She was his property, and he could do as he wished, as the Code of the Hills dictated. Mary would become a child bride, and J.P. married his own child bride, Maud Smith, who we already met, Marshall's mother. Marshall's sister, Rose, describes their childhood as a nightmare, her father beating her mama over nothing. He would threaten to burn her alive with kerosene, a lesson taken from how his own mother perished. In 1955, J.P. was put on a chain gang after a burglary conviction, which brought some relief to Maud. Eventually released, J.P. resumed his hateful sadistic behavior. After a vicious beating, J.P. told Maud to get out, and she did, grabbing the kids and taking off. She was able to divorce him and break the cycle of violence for her younger children. Marshall, however, had taken it all in, and he took after the Moore men. Having bullied and tormented his siblings and cousins, they were all relieved when he took off and went to Adamsville. And there, Marshall met Buck Jones, who was taken in by his family, and later Buck introduced him to Gwendolyn as we come full cycle. Not Gwendolyn or her sons did anything wrong. This hellish nightmare came from Marshall's need for control, seeking to dominate driving this dysfunction. If he felt slightly threatened, he'd rage and lash out. Yeah, threatened by his petite wife and small children, his unborn baby. A sniveling coward, unable to rein in the slightest impulse. And when Gwendolyn would seek shelter with his mother, he would show up, charm her, promise her he'd change, that this time it would be different. He only acted like this because he loved her so much. And she just made him angry sometimes. Listen, Gwendolyn wanted this so much. She wanted to believe him. 
She wanted her traditional family intact, so she went back multiple times. Please hear me. One reason I wanted to do this book is for this incredibly important lesson. Talk is cheap. Behavior is what matters. What did Marshall do to alter his behavior to back up his claim that he changed? Nothing. So why would anyone actually expect it to change? I can't change other people. You can't change other people. Only Marshall could change Marshall. And he did nothing to make that happen. This family cycle of domestic violence goes back at least a 100 years. And this behavior was learned from son to son to son down to Marshall. It is so heartbreaking. And I'm not surprised that Marshall killed her, just like Joseph killed Sarah. A wife was his possession, his children, his props, his tools to use to control. He used her love and hope to keep her and the boys hostage. And this is why she failed to escape a life of pain and torture, putting herself between this monster and her sons. If you are in pain, if you are hurt, that is not love. Love doesn't curse and punch and beat and smack. That's not love. Make a plan to leave. Find a safe place to stay and stay there. Do not return. Do not listen to charming promises. Do not do that. Talk is cheap. Make a plan. Leave safely. There are resources on my blog if you or someone you know is in a bad situation. Let's avoid more Gwendolyn's, please. Living on Mobley Bridge Road, the Moore's neighbors soon learned about the Moore family dynamic. In a 2002 interview, neighbor Ronnie Turner described Gwendolyn as, quote, a little bitty woman. Sometimes she'd be so beat up she wouldn't come out and be seen for days. Sometimes we'd call the police when he was beating her. When the shepherd's deputy came, they never did anything to him. And when they left, he would make her sorry they'd showed up. End quote. Summer 1970. Gwendolyn's sister Pat hadn't heard from her in weeks and was worried. She talked her husband Grady into taking a ride down to Hoganville right after the 4th of July. Marshall wasn't home when they arrived, and Pat found her once beautiful sister with swollen eyes, her beautiful long hair was largely missing, with bald spots where it had been pulled out. Her feet were black and blue and swollen. Pat asked her what the heck happened to her feet. Marshall had stomped them so she couldn't get up and run. She begged Pat not to make matters worse. If she left him, he'd surely kill her and who would care for the boys? Pat and Grady left, with Pat filled with a sense of impending doom and she wasn't wrong. July 28, 1970. Neighbor Louise Turner called the police. Marshall was beating Gwendolyn. From her kitchen window, the police could see Marshall taunting his wife. Hogansville patrolman Norman Smith said in a 2002 interview that Marshall was stalking his wife, walking around her in a chair saying, quote, if you bat an eye, I'll slap you out of that chair. And she must have blinked because he would knock her out of the chair. He'd reach down and pull her up by her hair and sit her back on the chair again. He hit her like that several times. He called the sheriff's office and asked them if they wanted us to go to the house until they got there. But they said no, the deputies would be there shortly and they would handle it. 
We couldn't stand to watch it anymore when we went back to the city. End quote. Deputies later found Gwendolyn Bloody with her head split open, and she was taken to the city county hospital in LaGrange. It took eight stitches to close up her wound. Less than a week later is when Gwendolyn let the boys go to the swimming pool with some friends. When Marshall arrived home, Gwendolyn was alone in the house with 13-month-old baby Dean. He flew into a rage as the next-door turners heard the horror unfolding. Ronnie called to his mother that he thought Marshall was going to kill her. She was going to call the police, but was talked out of it by Priscilla Shepard, the pianist of the Danny Turner Singers. Mind your own business being the mantra of the day. Three months later, Priscilla would marry Marshall Moore. Yeah, Priscilla of the corrupt Shepherd machine. Ronnie Turner, choking back tears, recalled what happened next. Marshall left with Gwendolyn on the floor unconscious. Beaten into a pitiful state, she finally used the furniture to climb to her feet, struggling to pull on some yellow shorts and a white shirt, and stumbled over to the neighbor's house. Clay clarified, quote, Ronnie, is that exactly how you remember it? You saw this one time 33 years ago. That's a lot to remember, end quote. Ronnie's next words haunt Clay, quote, Hell, Clay, that ain't the way I remember it. It's exactly the way it was. I ain't just seen it one time. I've seen it nearly every day for 33 years. I'll never forget it. I should have done something to save her. End quote. Oh, the guilt that everyone bears here is just horribly difficult. Ugh. Gwendolyn made it to Junior Turner's house as she had so many times before. Only this time, the kids were home alone. They hid Gwendolyn, eyes swollen and bloodied, and she was incoherent. When their parents got home, Junior went to help, trying to retrieve Gwendolyn from the crawl space, but she wasn't there. Fearing the worst, he sent his kids out to scour the surrounding areas. She could be hurt real bad. And soon, daughter Jennifer came screaming, quote, Come quick! I can see Gwen's in the old well! I think she's dead! End quote. So how did Gwendolyn wind up in a well? She'd been a vital, attractive young woman who impulsively fell in love. Over 15 years of marriage, fear, intimidation, and brutal abuse, she had changed into a shadow of her former self, a hermit walking around on eggshells when she was actually able to walk. This made her undesirable to Marshall, and in his view, she was nothing more than a slave, his possession. He wasn't fond of Gwendolyn. He wasn't fond of his kids, short of using them for stress release and his pawns to control Gwendolyn. Viewed as a tough guy, could he really allow Gwendolyn to leave? No, so he had to kill her. But Marshall is connected. Marshall was a truck driver with Brown Transportation, who did business with Milken Incorporated one of the country's largest textile manufacturers. And Marshall navigated the corrupt machine, an important cog in their financially advantageous vice wheel. After Gwendolyn's death, a scandal erupted that tied Milken Incorporated to product theft involving employees from Milken and Brown Transportation. With Marshall's knowledge of both companies, he was a valuable middleman and, as a result, protected by the machine specifically Robert Shefford, and Robert Shefford is also his father-in-law. 
So Marshall is insulated and he's not going to take the fall for his wife's death because business had to go on. And that, I'm sure, would make Priscilla happy. While there is debate over why Gwendolyn was killed, I do believe in part it was a desire for another woman. He was already doing everything and anything he wanted. And the real question both Clay and I asked was why on earth would Priscilla Shepard hook up with Marshall Moore, given his raw rage and brutality? Well, we do know this fact, and that illuminates matters a bit. It was Priscilla who intervened and thwarted Louise Turner when she was going to call the police to stop Marshall from beating Gwendolyn the night she was killed. And Marshall and Priscilla were married three months later, after the murder, which became a cold case the day she died. And this wraps up Part 1, A Coin in a Wishing Well, on Solving the West Georgia Murder of Gwendolyn Moore, A Cry from the Well by Clay Bryant. It's a tough story, I know. In two weeks, in Episode 67, All is Not Well. We will be delving into opening the cold case and how Clay solves this terrible murder 32 years later. And then Clay Bryant will solve another cold case when we get into his new release from May 2023, the cold case murder of Fred Wilkerson untangling the Black Widow's Web in West Georgia. One day in 1987, Fred Wilkerson up and vanished, and the case languished for 17 years. There is so much here. You really should read the books. And Patreon folks, this is going to be one for the record books. I can't wait. All right, I need you all to stop right now and leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It is really important that I find new murder bookies, and I need you to help me out. As always, I am so appreciative that you give me your time and your attention, and it keeps me going. I see you as you hear me. Thank you for listening. Reach out to me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or shoot me an email at jill at murdershelfbookclub.com. I love hearing from you. Subscribe to my episodes so they pop right into your feed. And until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Trust your gut. Source material and snack and drink information for the Clay Bryant Books Trilogy is found on my blog, too. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved. Music by Carl Hosanna and lyrics by Otto Harbach.